At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. Morning. How are we? I got a great and some goods. Okay. I like the great the best. I'm keeping that one. Okay, cool. Well, we are in a series. By the way, let me start with my name. How about that? You may be new. My name is Nick Stales. I'm the student director here. Uh, I get to work with our middle school and high school students alongside our resident Isaac, who gave the announcements this morning. Uh, And Paralene doesn't know what any of our desks are called, uh, which is okay. He'll get there. He's young. He'll get it. Get there eventually. Just picking on. We like to pick on each other as much as humanly possible. So, uh, anyway, we're in a series called Elijah, a man just like us. And we've been looking at the life of one of the highest prophets in all of Israel. And his character, his faith, his boldness, and trust in the Lord have stood out thus far in our series. I think that that kind of makes him feel like a giant of the faith, right? But, but we wouldn't necessarily call him a, a man just like us because look at his triumphs. Look what he's done as a prophet of the Lord. It makes him seem like a super saint. But Elijah, Elijah wasn't a super saint. He actually struggled with self-pity. He looked inwardly too quickly and became focused on himself and his own circumstances. Anyone in the room ever, uh, ever feel sorry for yourself? Ever? A few of us? I think if we're all honest, all of our hands would have come up at one point there. Ever throw yourself a pity party where you're really just in it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe you didn't get something that you wanted or something didn't go the way that you expected it to. Something you felt you were deserving of, it didn't come to fruition. Maybe you feel bad for yourself because of some sort of loss or circumstance that brings grief and despair into your life. Anyone know this guy here? Let me, I got a picture, I got a visual aid because I'm a little old school. I'm still super young though. So get that out of the way. This guy here? Oh, it's Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Maybe one of the best characters in the whole show. I don't know if that's a, a bold take. I don't know. But, but Eeyore, the lovable donkey that perpetually wallows in self-pity. I've got some of his quotes here. I'd like to read a few of them. I'll try to do his voice if it's bad. Um, it's Isaac's fault. Okay. <laughs> Here's the first one. Thanks for noticing me. Or here, uh, not much of a house. Just right for not much of a donkey. And I think this is my favorite one. No need to bother on my account. Poor hapless Eeyore, right? 
Yet, how relatable is Eeyore to us when we find our lives, our circumstances, our desires, our aspirations to be less than what we had hoped for? We look inside, full of, of, of self-pity for, for ourselves and allow despair to rule over our lives. So in our text this morning, what we're going to see is we're going to see Elijah at his lowest point. And we're going to be in chapter 19. And I would like to, to let you guys remember here chapter 18, uh, which we just went over the last two weeks. If you guys remember uh, what Pastor Kevin preached about just two weeks ago, um, one of the, the greatest spiritual victories in all of Scripture. It's, a, it's an incredible story. We'll recount it real quickly. We're at Mount Carmel. Elijah confronts Ahab, the king. He confronts the Israelites and the prophets of this false god, Baal, that they're all falling for. And Elijah lays it out in verse 21 and says, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And then they have a contest to see who had the real, true, living God. Which one is going to bring down fire on their respective altars? But it wasn't really a contest because if you guys recall, the prophets of Baal are praying and they're crying out and, and no fire. And they're cutting themselves as a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to Baal and no fire. And Elijah's just kind of mocking their guy like, oh, maybe he's just taking a nap or going number two. Which I think Pastor Kevin outlined was the true meaning of that passage that maybe Baal was going number two. And then Elijah did something really crazy. It was already pretty, pretty bold for him to, to make this proclamation and call out this false god that hundreds of, of these prophets are proclaiming. But then he takes all this water and pours it all over his altar. Because surely an altar soaking wet can't catch on fire. So what in the world is Elijah trying to prove? That's how confident and trusting Elijah was in God. So he prays. And what does God do? He consumes the altar with fire. Demonstrating what it says in 1 Kings 18, 39, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So Elijah here, as the prophet of God, has a pretty great victory under his belt. By all accounts, things are going pretty great for Elijah. He even gets to, to predict the rain that's coming after, after the drought, this long drought that everyone's been suffering through. But following these events, Elijah's is sinking straight to the bottom. He looks at these circumstances that he's currently surrounded with, which we'll get to here in the text, and his heart swells with self-pity. And our passage in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18, are going to bring us into Elijah's self-pity where God meets him and brings him out of his pit. In fact, it's through God's call on Elijah's life that his self-pity is conquered. So I'd love to figure out how that works out because I know for myself, sometimes it gets rough. Because it's the same call that God has for our lives. The same call he has for Elijah is for us as well so that he'll bring victory into our hearts when we're full of self-pity. And the focus this morning is that God's call conquers our self-pity. We're going to do a little, little fun call and response because I want to make sure you guys believe and understand that. So I'm going to say it and then you say it, okay? Does that make sense? Perfect. God's call conquers our self-pity. 
I don't believe it yet. God's call conquers our self-pity. All right, let's make it a little more personal. Ready? God's call conquers my self-pity. So the question is, will we listen to God's call? Will you, knowing that this is the truth, listen to God's call? Before we dig into our text, let's stop. Let's come before the Lord and pray. Father God, we're so grateful for you, for the provisions that you provide us with, for the grace that you pour upon us, for the mercy that we receive every single day on this earth. God, we thank you for who you are, for the creation of this beautiful world, for the creation of us, and for valuing us so much, God, that you would send your son, that Jesus would, would willingly take on the cross and die for us to defeat sin and death so that we have an opportunity to spend eternity in relationship with you. God, we are so grateful. Or as we enter into this text today, help us see and understand what this means for our lives. How you really feel about human self-pity. What you call us to, which is so much more than what we have to offer. God, thank you for loving us. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. So as we get into the text here in 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to look at three different callings that God makes to conquer self-pity. And the first one is this. God calls us to himself. Uh, so we'll read verses 1 through 8 here. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he took, and he looked, and behold, there was a, uh, at his head a cake ba uh, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So it may be a little surprising that, that Elijah, this super saint, is wallowing in self-pity. He's just seen this tremendous victory. He's seen his God show himself to be real to everyone. He's witnessed this. He, he called that fire down in prayer, and God listened. Yet, here he is, just a short while later, running for his life. Because someone was not happy about what he's done. Right, we look at Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who is opposed to the Lord and to his people deeply. She's the one that introduced Baal worship 
to Israel through her marriage to Ahab in 1 Kings 16. And she's also the one responsible for rounding up and slaughtering the prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings 18. So after Ahab reported what happened at Mount Carmel, she issues a death threat against Elijah, effective immediately. She wants him to understand and know, I'm coming for you, I want your head. So instead of of faith in God's protection and provisions for his life, Elijah responds in fear. He travels this long way from, from Jezreel, which is in the north, all the way down to the south where Beersheba is, which is basically as far as he can get from Jezebel. And we see his self-pity take over. Here in verse 4, it tells us that Elijah went a day's uh, journey into the wilderness where he found a broom tree to sit under and uttered his desire to die. It was so bad for Elijah. Everything was so bad for him. He felt so useless, so worthless, that he was ready to give it all up. That's it. God, just take my life. And he lays down because he's exhausted. And he sleeps. But God doesn't take his life. God does not fulfill that request. Rather, God summons Elijah to himself. But why? Why would God do that? Well, verse 7 helps us understand that a little bit. What we see is that the angel tells Elijah, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So we see Elijah eat, and then verse 8 tells us that, that that food gave him the strength and the sustenance to go 40 days and 40 nights out to, the, to Horeb, the mount of God. So here we see God answering Elijah's self-pity with a call to himself. God is saying, come to where I am. Come be with me. He supplies Elijah with the, the physical necessities that he needs to make the trip, to bring him to that very mountain that he met Moses on. God calls Elijah here to to the mountain where the covenant with Israel was made. This is a a sacred place. And specifically, it's the place where God proclaimed his name to Moses. We see in Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So here in his self-pity and his despair... We have Elijah not being rejected by God, rather God calling Elijah to himself in order for Elijah to remember and rest in the covenant love and grace that he's established with his people, that God has established with Israel. God doesn't turn Elijah away in his weakness, but draws him close in order to restore and revitalize his heart and life. So so when we face self-pity or or these feelings of being defeated or despair because things just haven't gone our way, haven't turned out the way we really hoped that they would. We can be encouraged and know that God does not move away from us. Rather, God draws us near to him. As you suffer through difficulty, God does not pull away. He desires to draw you near. I can, I can easily say that from up here, right? Like, it's really easy to say, no, God draws you near, no. You know, in your despair, just turn to God. But I can actually speak from experience. I, a couple weeks back, a few weeks ago now, I think, maybe, golly, over a month ago, I was up here um, 
on July 16th, and I, I shared a bit about my uh, previous career as an animal keeper and how that organization that I absolutely loved working for and the animals, the people, it fell apart. In fact, I, was, I had to be part of the process of dismantling that organization at the very end, which was so very difficult. I, I was struggling deeply with self-pity in that moment because this God that I trusted with, with providing for me and my family took away my ability to provide for my family. And, and this, this job, this organization that I loved, like, how could he, he take that from me? But he had a different call for my life. In my pity and in my despair, as I struggled with this, as I cried out to God, he called me to his purpose. He called me to something different. And he comforted me. My wife and I actually felt peace in the midst of not knowing where the next meal is going to come from or how we're going to pay rent or how we're going to pay for our car and worrying about things being taken from us. He gave us peace. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God does not turn the person away who despairs. He invites us to see his grace and see his mercy. He invites us to reflect on his love and the promises he made in Christ. Jesus died for people full of self-pity. He gave up his life for the one in despair who feels like through their frustrations and their difficulties that they're all alone. We're never all alone. God conquers our self-pity by calling us to himself. But not only does he conquer our self-pity by calling him to ourselves, he makes a second calling here, and that is God calls us to the truth. So let's see what our text has to say. We're going to work through verses 9 through 14, and then we're going to add in 18, which is going to at first kind of seem like it doesn't fit, um, but I promise you it'll all make sense in a moment. Starting in verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah's approaching this mountain. 
this place where God is, and he finds this cave to lodge in. And perhaps he thought, I'm just going to maybe live out my life here as a hermit all alone uh, and hopefully be able to rest in the peace of God here. But God is not content with Elijah to just sit there wallowing in his own self-pity. He speaks to Elijah and asks him to, to share his perspective, to reflect on his own perspective. God asks, what are you doing here? And Elijah recounts Israel's failures to trust God. Their failures to be faithful to him. And he despairs because it looks like, in his perspective, he's the only faithful one. He's the only one that remains that is faithful to God. But God, in his kindness and in his compassion, calls Elijah to see a new perspective, to see things a little differently. Because he wants to restore and remind Elijah the truth of who God really is. And Elijah has to see that truth of who God is in order to experience that change in his heart. He has to see the truth. And we can look at these elements of the wind and the earthquake and the fire, and they're, and they're similar to what Moses experienced when he met God on that very same mountain back in Exodus 19 and 20. Both Moses and Elijah are called there to stand before God. What an incredible calling. And God's power is shown here in order to reacquaint Elijah with the truth. That God is the one that's so sovereign over all of nature, not the prophets, these false prophets of Baal, not Baal, this false god, not Jezebel. God is the one who made his covenant with Moses and expressed his eternal love for his people at that very place. And Elijah may look at his, his current circumstances and feel defeated, but God's power and glory and love are not inadequate. Amen is right. God's power, God's glory, and his love are not and will never, ever be inadequate. Elijah's in a pretty dark place. And God's in a spot where he's working to help Elijah see and understand his truth. That God does not abandon his people. And the quietness that we hear in that low whisper, it's showing Elijah his faithfulness. The quietness of God's work does not mean he is not at work. And oftentimes we look at our lives and we're like, man, God, where in the world are you? What are you even doing? Do you even hear me? I, I can't hear what you're doing. I don't see what you're doing. What are you doing? Just because we don't hear or see or understand what God is doing in the moment doesn't mean he's not at work because God is always at work in our lives. He's continually at work for us to show us his grace and mercy, to show us his love. In verse 13, God asks Elijah that same question he asked him in verse 9. What are you doing here? And Elijah comes back with the exact same answer in verse 14. Right, he says, I've been faithful, but no one else is. I'm the only one left. It's just me. I can't do this on my own. See, God responds to Elijah's self-pity here and his, his skewed perspective on, on how things are really going to reveal the truth of where Elijah really stands. This is where verse 18 comes in. He wants him to understand that he's not the only one left. In fact, he's kept a remnant 
In verse 18, we saw it said 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah's not alone. He has more fighting the same fight alongside of him. The truth that God calls Elijah to is to believe that God is supremely powerful and that Elijah is not alone. And he wants us to understand that even though we feel alone at times, we are not alone. When we struggle with despair, when we're struggling with self-pity in our lives and feel easily like we're at it alone, like there's no one that has our back, that no one's going to bat for us, that we're, we're stuck, that it's just us in the dark. But the truth of the matter is that God is always with us. God is always with us and he gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us to guide us, to love us, to, to show us his grace and allow us to feel the mercy of God. And as if that weren't enough, which I promise you it is, uh, he also gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. Right here, in this place, sitting next to you, are your brothers and sisters that are here to support and love you in your times of weakness and tribulation. I, I could tell you there's there's far too many people that try to walk the rocky road of life on their own. But there's far too many Christians that try to withstand the onslaught of the enemy without Christ-centered community. There are so many people that think, I can, I can do this faith thing with God without other people. I don't, I don't need other people. All I need is God, my Bible. I don't need others. That's not what we're created for. Let's take a look at Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And the NLT, it says this. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how could one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. As we were created for community with God and, and with others, with each other. If you've been traversing your life or, or your faith alone, please realize and understand that God has called you to so much more. He's called you to himself. Christ calls you into a relationship with him and with each other. That's why we push life groups so much here at Woodside. We're not doing it just to meet some metrics or some numbers or something stupid like that. It's because we understand the, the need for Christ-centered community. We understand that as we go through life, there's going to be times when, when we're going to hit a wall, when we're going to be struggling through the storm, and we need people. Or, or when, we're, when we're experiencing victory in our lives, we need others to celebrate with us to love us through those things and for us to reciprocate and love through their difficulties and through their victories. If you're not currently in a life group, if maybe you've been thinking about it or maybe you've thought, I don't have time for that, may this be your call to action. Like take this as your charge to investigate. Go to the welcome desk. Figure out how you can get connected into a life group because we need each other we have God as our example who lives in perfect community with himself. Father, Son, and Spirit living perfectly in community together. He, he examples the community for us. 
God conquers our self-pity by calling us to himself, by, by calling us to the truth, and also God calls us to serve. That's the third one. So what we're going to do is read verses 15 through 17 here. And it says this, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Heziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So God responds here to Elijah's repeated declaration that he's the only one left by mobilizing Elijah back into ministry. Elijah's taken himself out of his call and he's wandering in the wilderness in self-pity, trying to die. And God's calling him into the ministry that he first called him to. He turns Elijah away from introspective self-focus to external movement and work. So verses 15 through 17 are simply a call of God on Elijah to be obedient and go back to the prophet's work. He's sent to anoint the new king of Syria, to appoint the new king of Israel and his own successor in Elisha. And what God wants him to understand is that his plans are not going to be thwarted. God's plans will not fail. He will come out victorious. What he says is going to happen will happen. So God answers, answers to Elijah's crisis and faith is underlined that he remains the God who orders all things according to his word. Not according to, to Ahab's word or Jezebel's word or, or Baal or the prophets of Baal's word or any king or any kingdom. Only God. So self-pity is defeated by the service and mission that God gives Elijah to be obedient in carrying out. He's called to obedience and service. Often our self-pity tends to get exacerbated by our want to be served, our focus on ourselves. When we're called to look outside of ourselves and to serve others, we have to take Jesus as our example. He's, He's the one in Scripture that we should model our lives after. As followers and believers of Christ, we see in Mark 10, 45 that He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So as followers of Christ, if you in this room proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior, as a follower of him, you are called to go and to serve. That means not being self-focused or self-pitying, but rather being called to be faithful in the ways that God has given us to serve even if they seem to you to be small or unnoticed or insignificant. What I can promise you is that if you are being faithful and serving God, he always sees it. And it's not insignificant because he called you to do it. It's important. Whether it seems insignificant to you, it is not. Not to God. If you're looking for ways to serve, gosh, we got plenty right here. I mean, our kids' ministry needs people to show the love of Christ to our next generation, to those that are going to fill these seats one day. Maybe that's a way that you can serve. The Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You guys all know it, right? 
Jesus commands us, and, and what I want you to understand is he doesn't suggest to us, but commands us, rather, to go make disciples of all nations. It's not like Jesus saying, hey, guys, if you guys, if you're feeling up to it, if you feel, if you feel like maybe you want to, you could maybe go share the good news with everybody. That'd be cool. It's not at all. He uses the word go. He doesn't say, if you want to go, or maybe you could go. He says, go, make disciples of all nations. Our self-pity is defeated when we stop focusing on ourselves and our own disappointments, our own afflictions, and we practice obedience by serving God and serving others. So God conquers our self-pity through calling us to serve. What we have to continually remember is that Jesus came to self-pitying, despairing people, and he died for us. He came revealing and showing us God's great love and power and telling us the truth of our needs and, and, and what God's mercy really looks like. Jesus came as a servant to redeem and rescue self-pitying people with his cross and resurrection. And he gives us his Holy Spirit and sends us on his mission to take the good news of his grace to all nations. So it's through God's call to himself, to the truth, and to service that our self-pity can be conquered. So the question I'd like to leave you with is, will you listen for and heed that call and walk in obedience with him? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.